So we are uh, also in this series on the Bible. I have, uh, we, we had a great morning already this morning. We've been talking about uh, the creation and then Abraham. And now we're going to go into an, a different story of the Bible that you may or may not be familiar with. And the reason why we're doing it is because I believe and I just know that you and people that you know and your neighbors and friends and family care about what's in Scripture, you actually do care, and most people wonder what's in Scripture. They, they have a hard time believing that this ancient text could still be relevant to their life after so many years, and they've picked it up in the past, and they've had trouble reading it, and so they've stopped and they've put it down, or they've heard some kind of weird religious freak use passages of Scripture or verses to shame them or to make them feel bad about something, so they say, I don't want to have anything to do with that, and yet still, in the back of your minds, our minds, our friends' minds, you wonder, does this thing have relevance? to me. And so we're talking about some of, these, some of these big stories throughout the Old Testament, and then we'll get to the New Testament, that have great relevance for your life today. Now, this morning, when you walk out of here in 30 minutes or whatever it is, I want you to have considered two things. One, your appetite, and second, your identity. Your appetite and your identity. Identity you kind of get because you have a, like an ID card. Some of you got your ID card a little bit sooner than you were supposed to. We won't talk about that. But the appetite part of it is what I want to I spend a little bit more time on right now. Do you recognize that you have appetites? You have things in you that drive you toward more. I believe, this is just kind of my opinion as I look at how we're wired and how God works. I believe that God has given you the appetite that you have. Given you the desire that you have to want to grow, to become more, to build more. He, he gave the instructions to the first humans, Adam and Eve, to go and procreate, have lots of kids, fill the earth, you know, uh, manage creation. There's something in us that wants more to grow, process, advance. That's a God-given thing. But our appetites can be supercharged, energized, tweaked, and twisted by in this broken world having something to do with sin. And they can run and ruin your life. And you know it's true. You don't have to look very far. You don't have to look very far to see it in your own family, right? Your extended relatives and different people, maybe even your immediate family. And you have seen people that have let their appetite run wild in their life, take over, and they have made decisions that have been detrimental to their own health, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and to your family. You know what that is, and you know that there is something in you that's not satisfied, something in you that drives for more. Just, just some basic things as a guy. What, what are the appetites that, that we experience? Food is an easy one, an obvious one, right? Sex, food, sex. I think there must be more, but those are the ones... As a guy, that's, a, that's kind, of, kind of what you, you go to first. I've only been a guy, so I don't know, I don't know what kind of... But no, there's other ones. I've talked to some people, and I know that there's some other ones too. So the appetite for success, right? An appetite for attractiveness and appeal. An appetite for love. I think there was a song, and not a good song, about having an appetite for love, for, for community, for connection. Right? We have an appetite that drives us to these things, and we make decisions. I have an appetite for chips and guacamole. I do. <laughs> And salsa, and, and most Mexican foods, too. I would, and Mexican beer, okay, leave me alone, stop judging me. 
But we have these appetites, and, and when I'm sitting in front of Mexican food, I have a difficult time stopping when I should. There's this, there's this mechanism that happens, and I think, okay, I'm probably done. I think, I think I've consumed enough uh, chips and salsa that I can probably call it a day, and yet I keep going further, right? There's the appetites are kind of this, they're unquenchable. They just want more. They're never, get this, your appetite is never fully and finally satisfied. Your appetite is never fully and finally satisfied. It's always going to be telling you more, 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 more in these different areas of your life. And it's something that you will have to learn to manage as you grow up, as you get older, as you endeavor in different ways, as you start a family, as you, wherever you are in life. It's your appetite you will need to manage because it has the tendency and capacity to run and to ruin your life. And we're going to be looking at a story in Genesis chapter 25. If you have Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible and you want a Bible, we have some at the back. You can grab them and you can take it home with you as our gift to you. But Genesis chapter 25 is where we're going to start. We have Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. You know the deal. And then there's this Isaac is his kid. Now Isaac has two kids. He, we're about to read his story about these two kids that Isaac has that come into the world. And it's a very interesting story. Remember what we're looking for. We're looking for appetite first, and then later we'll talk about identity. So watch, watch where appetite plays into this whole picture. Genesis chapter 25, verse 24. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first one, came out, the first one to come out was red. His whole body was like a hairy garment, Right? So they named him Esau. Uh, Esau like literally means red. So he comes out red and hairy. His body's like a hairy garment. That's a little bit awkward. You might wonder like, uh, dad was like, yes, this kid, like he's a man's man as a baby. I imagine the SNL sketch where Will Ferrell comes out with a mustache and a cigar like what? And, and you, it's, it's that kind of a thing. Like this kid comes out hairy and chiseled and the dad's like, okay, Esau, that's my guy. After this, his brother came out, and his right hand grasping, his brother came out with his right hand grasping at Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Now, so you have this picture. It's a weird deal. You have this picture of twins in the womb. Esau is born. As he's born, Jacob is kind of reaching for his foot, reaching for his heel. And you get this foreshadowing, this, this, this picture of what's to come, that Jacob is going to want what's Esau's. Jacob, somehow, he wants to be out first. And yet Esau, he's like really hairy and strong. And so he elbows his way straight to the canal. And he's like, see you, kid. And so, and so, so he's out first. But Jacob is secretly like irritated and he wants to be out first. Literally, so he's reaching for his brother's foot as if he could like pull him back and then take that, take that first space. It's a, it's a glimpse of what is to come. And here's, here's a really important part of this deal is that the birthright is a significant reality in that ancient Middle Eastern culture. The birthright goes to the firstborn. The birthright is passed on to Esau as the firstborn. Even though they're twins, he came out, he's like 10 minutes older, so he's the firstborn. And Jacob, he missed his chance, he reached too soon, or didn't, wasn't strong enough, or what, whatever. Esau, firstborn, birthright. Now, the birthright in that culture was really significant. It meant a couple of things. It meant, as the oldest, that you were going to get twice the inheritance as your other siblings. That's a big deal. Double the inheritance of your other siblings. So you do the math. You break down. If it's like a million-dollar inheritance, uh, you know, big brother gets all of this, and the other kids get to split up the other half, right, or, or whatever it looks like. They 
gave the firstborn the privileges. Not only was it in terms of wealth and property and things like that, you also had the authority as the judge and jury of the rest of your family. So when dad was gone, now you bring the problems to big brother. And he, there's no, there's no you know, higher court, there's no you know, lawyers and things and arbitration happening. There's an issue, so-and-so did this, and then this happened, and they took my money, and then I wrecked my car. Okay, bring it to Esau. He's the older brother. His, he's got the birthright. He will decide what's fair. And his decision's final. There's no court of appeals. It's like, this is how it's going to be. Take it or leave it. I'm the birthright guy, you know? So that's the way it was in that culture. And he believed that God blessed the firstborn a little bit more than the others. So that's the birthright. Now maybe you see as, as an infant, not that he had any kind of awareness, but why maybe Jacob is reaching for that spot from the womb. And so that is what's playing out. Now, as I was growing up and I heard this story early on, I didn't really connect with it, right? It's Old Testament story, interesting, whatever, but I, I didn't really see the significance. I am the oldest, but I didn't put myself in this story. As I've done a little bit more thinking about it, I, I, I've processed it and, it and it's hooked me a little bit more and I hope it hooks you. Here's the deal. My, my mom is in town. She's visiting. I think she's outside with baby Jack right now so that Hillary could be in here without slobber on her. And so uh, since my mom is here, I said, hey, mom, can you give me a picture of me with one of my brothers? And so she gave me this picture. This is me and a picture of my little brother, Aaron. There's another brother in the middle named Josh. Uh, I know what you're thinking. I have lost a lot of hair. So that's just real, and I can't get that back, but it is what it is. I used to look like Zach Morris. Now, who knows? But. And so my little brother, Aaron, he's five years younger than me. There's Josh in the middle. Now, we, we got along really well. Good, good brothers. We have good relationship. But there's still something about the older brother and the little brother dynamic. You guys know this because you're in families. Some of you are only children, but you still see this playing out. The oldest is cool to the younger. And the younger wants to spend time with, hang out with, be around the older. Most of the time, that's just how it works. And in, in your different environments, I've seen it play out where the younger kid is like a gnat, like flying around the older person and just like, can I be around you? Can I wear that? Uh, oh, I like that too. Oh, look at this music. And oh, can I have your friend? And they're just kind of hovering and they're just always there. And the older sibling's like, come on, mom, do I have to share a room with this guy anymore? Can we at least like spray? This is nasty. He just stinks. We, you know, I got the, got the duct tape down the middle of the room trying to separate space and have your own space. Don't touch my stuff. So you have that dynamic, and most of the time, the younger brother is trying to get into the space, trying to get connection to, trying to be with the older. That's just how it works. And once in a while, after a rejection and whatever, and you know, come, well, you come and play with us on my terms, or don't talk to my friends, you're dumb, or you know, whatever it is, you put on my clothes again, and I'm going to, you know, once in a while. The younger brother has a moment, a shining moment in time where the older brother, older sister needs something that younger brother or sister has, <laughs> right? Oh, and they relish that moment. It's, it's this, I, you know, my, my little brother, Aaron, he, he wasn't, Josh and I played more sports. Aaron played a little bit of volleyball, but he was more like a com computer guy. He knew how things worked. He could build stuff. He could fix stuff. He could make stuff happen. Technologically savvy. Knew where wires go, all that stuff, right? So one time I'm coming back from college and I have this, you know, presentation and I can't figure out how to get like these certain files and these certain pictures and stuff into the presentation in the proper way. And so I come and I'm like, Aaron, I need you to help me with this program. He's like, oh, really? <laughs> you need me. 
And so at this moment, you have a decision to make. It's, it's kind of like, okay, what's the most valuable thing that I can get from this arrangement? And so he has, you know, I, I had a car that I was driving, so he was like, can I use your car? I'm like, uh, yeah, maybe. And if, if I don't let him, then he goes to the next thing. You know, like, I'll trade you for that, you know, Bo Jackson rookie card or whatever. Like, whatever he thinks is valuable to me, then we tra- have this ex- exchange because I need him in some way. And younger siblings rarely feel needed. They feel like they're always having to go and find their way and get time with the older ones, right? And so that's the dynamic that we see here. That's, that's where we find ourselves, and you'll, you'll see what happens here. Verse 27, the boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, a man's man, a man that his dad was proud of. Not only was he hairy, he just got hairier, and he hunted hairy stuff, and he scalped them. And, you know, I don't know, whatever. It's not scalped. That's not the right word. But he, like, you know, did what men do in the open country. He was, he was a stud of a guy. And it says, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents, because that's what Jacob did, apparently. Isaac, the dad, had a taste for wild game, so he loved Esau. But Rebecca loved Jacob. So you have favoritism, right? Starting early on here. Now, you don't have favorites. I know, you don't have favorites. Uh, and some of you are like, see, there's favoritism in the Bible. Like, I can have a favorite or, you know, so-and-so. He's weird. I want, the, you know, this kid. No, no, no. This is a little like a little side note. Uh, the scripture is full of all kinds of weird stuff, right? I mean, HBO has nothing on the Bible. The Bible is full of crazy things. And it's constantly, it's not something where you find something in scripture and you're like, hey, that, that happened there, so I can do that. No, a lot of times, most of the time, it's humans screwing stuff up doing stuff wrong, and God's saying, no, 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 there's a better way, and I will forgive you and work out for good despite of all that crazy stuff, right? So these guys had a favorite. It was awkward. Both boys knew it. It played out in different ways, and the favorite was clear. Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. Esau was the man's man, made his dad proud, brought home the beef, literally, just kind of meat and here, let's eat. And Esau or Isaac is like, that's my guy. And then you have Rebecca over here with mama's boy, and he's like, you know, a little bit metro, and he's just like (laughs) making... The tent, the tent looks great, and he, and he, he, he's like, he's mom's kid. And so, verse 29, once Jacob was cooking some stew, because Jacob cooked, and he was good at it, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Okay, so here we have that moment. Oh, really? You need something from me, older brother. Like, you're, you're in from being the hero out in the field, and now you're really, really hungry, apparently, and you want some stew. Well, I, I've got some stew for you. You know, let's, let's, let's talk about this. And what you're going to see here is that appetite drives us to do some crazy things. And it's not just here thousands of years ago in the Bible. This is for you. Verse 31, Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Remember the significance of the birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau says. What good is my birthright to me anyway? 
I'm about to die. Look, dude, seriously, we just saw you walk in from the fields. Like, you're not about to die. That's not how starvation works. You might be really hungry. You might be dehydrated. Your blood sugar might have plummeted, but you're not about to die. Drama, right? And that's what happens. Our appetites get us, they get us all riled up till we think we have to have this thing or else we're gonna die. Appetites play tricks on our brains. They fool our brains. One way they do that is this thing called focalism. Focalism is when you are so focused on this thing that you think you need that everything else kind of blurs out of the picture. You know this from high school, gentlemen, because you, there was this girl and she was there, and you saw her in class, or in the quad, or in the courtyard, and you saw her, and everything else just kind of like melted away, and you were mesmerized. And your friends were trying to talk to you, and sound like wah, 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 because you were just locked in. Now, this girl didn't know you then, and hasn't thought of you since, but you, <laughs> you were focused. It's the same thing when you decide that you need a new car. You just, you, this is the car that I want. It's shiny. It's nice. It's new. It's, and you, you get your mind around, I need this car. And then what happens everywhere you go? You see that car. You see that car everywhere you go. And you think, man, this is the best-selling car in history. Now I really need it. No. Your mind is tricking you. It's so focused on that thing that everywhere you go, even though there's a hundred other cars you're missing, it sees that one. Ladies, you're not off the hook. When you walk into a department store, you just have this, there's some women that just have this like, like, like honing device. It just draws them toward the shoes and they just go and you spot that one flat that you don't have. You know, it's just like this thing. And it's just, I have lots of shoes. In fact, this morning when I opened my closet, I like raked 12 dozen shoes out of the way just so that I could get into my closet. And yet I need this shoe because it will go really well with like two whole outfits. And so I need... I need this and everything else just kind of drifts into the distance and blurs and your kids are back here fighting and spilling stuff, but you just see the shoe. I've got to have the shoe, right? Focus, when we get focused, focalism does that to us. Our appetites fool our brain. Another way they do it is impact bias. The reality of that is it makes you believe your appetite tricks your brain into thinking that this thing, if you were to have it, would give you the feeling of a 10, when reality, it only delivers a two. That's why there's buyer's remorse. You get the shoe, you get the car, you get whatever, and immediately you're like, oh, dang it. Are we past the, can I, I'm not even sure I even want this anymore. Because your brain tricks you into thinking that it's going to feel here, and it actually feels here. It's always promising. Your appetite is promising more than it can deliver. It's telling you that if you have this experience, you'll be satisfied. You are never fully and finally satisfied. Appetites are a tension that you will manage your whole life. Your brain tries to trick you and make you believe that if you just, if you just are with that person, then like, you deserve that. That's going to feel great. That's going to solve your problems. And you get into it and you realize, no, you're the same person. That doesn't feel good at all, and it's cost me all of this. Our brains trick us into thinking that it's going to give us this, and it only ever delivers down here. Our brains lie to us, and they lie to 
Esau. Here's what happens. Verse 33, but Jacob said, swear to me first, brother, swear to me that I can have your birthright. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob for a bull of stew. Then Jacob gave Esau some of the bread and some of the lentil stew, and he ate and drank and then got up and left. Because what else do you do when your stew is gone? You get to the bottom of an empty bowl, and you just move on to the next thing. And so Esau trades away his birthright for a bowl of stew. And I wish that someone would have been there. I wish that someone would have been in that moment and and leaning over Esau's shoulder and just whispering to him, just give him a little coaching. Just be like, dude, look, I know you're really hungry. I know you're famished. I know you think you're going to die. But let's just pull back for a second and consider the larger scope of reality here. Just pull back from us. I know it feels like your stomach's all tight. I know that it smells really good and looks really good and you think you really need this. But let's just pull back. Esau, Esau, I see. I know that you're hungry. But let me tell you something. Hundreds of years from now, there's going to be this guy named Moses. And you haven't heard of him yet. You haven't heard, but he's going to come along. He's going to be kind of famous. He's going to do a cool deal. God's going to do with water and things. And there's, you know, Pharaoh's involved. You don't know that with Pharaoh, but just trust me. It's going to be cool. And God is going to fulfill the promise that he's given to your granddad, Abraham, and your dad, Isaac, and then to you. He's going to give you this big nation. And God is going to lead that nation out of slavery across this sea that's going to part in the middle and into a promised land eventually. And and get this, Esau, Esau. He's going to show up to Moses, who will be really cool and famous, He's going to show up to him and he's going to identify himself as God like this. Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And he's going to show up and it's going to be like this bush and there's going to be a fire and you know, don't, don't wrap your head around that. It's weird, but God does cool things. And he's going to say, Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Listen to me. And then, hundreds of years later, there's going to be this great king named David. He's going to kill a giant, like, bigger than anyone you've ever seen. It's going to be crazy. And, and God is going to speak through David. He's going to call himself the God of Isaac, or Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And then, still hundreds of years after that, God is going to come as a, in a man in skin to save the world and die to pay for everyone else's sins. And when he shows up, Esau... He is going to say with his own lips, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And everything I promised is unfolding in these generations and in the manner that I said it would. But Esau, all that changes if you sell your birthright for a bull of stew. And so you look through scripture, you look at those places, you look at other, several other places in the Bible, and you will see God identifying himself today as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because his appetite drove him. His appetite ran his life. 
And you might have disconnected like I did from this story in the past, and you might have said, that is just so idiotic. Who in their right mind would trade all of that, the birthright, the double the inheritance, the blessing from God, being the judge and jury of his family, being in this lineage that God is going to do all that he's going to do through history? Who would do that for a bowl of stew? You would. I would. If it was the right bowl of stew. You would. If you let your appetite keep going, keep running your life, keep telling you that what you need is that relationship, not the one you're in. That that is what will satisfy you. That if you just had a little bit more money, then things would be fine. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna cut some corners and, and, and do some things, and, and your mind's going to trick you into believing that if you, get, if you get that car, if you get that house, if you make that compromise, then, then you'll feel this. If you have this experience, then it's going to be really, really satisfying. And it's, and it's going to be right here. And your mind's going to try to get you to focus and focus and obsess and obsess. And if you're not careful, you will fall into the same trap and forfeit something great that God has planned for you over a bowl of stew. Because our appetites are a dangerous thing, and they are never fully and finally satisfied. They fool our brains all the time, and they are trying to get us. There is an enemy, and he is trying to supercharge these appetites and get us to compromise who we are and what God has for us in these quick fix, immediate gratification decisions that can cost you greatly. So what I want to encourage you to do today is simple. I want to encourage you to reframe your appetite. Reframe your appetite. Try an exercise. Try a simple little thing like this. Write down, if you've got a journal, your notes, or even tomorrow morning when you wake up, write down, 10 years from now, Dot, dot, dot. Who do you want to be 10 years from now? What do you think that God wants for your life 10 years from now? Where will you be 10 years from now if you continue to trust God and make good decisions? 10 years from now, this is what I think life should look like. And I am not willing to give up this life, this, this legacy, this journey that God has me on for a silly bowl of stew that feels so good in the moment that I think that I need so badly right now. Ten years from now, God wants to do this, I believe. I want to be a part of this with my life. And as you do that, I want you to think about it in light of your identity. We talked about appetite. We talked about identity. Jacob, we're going to fast forward a few chapters to Genesis 32 and check in with Jacob. So Jacob now has the birthright. He is scandalous. He's swindled his brother out of it. And then he had to run for his life because Esau wanted to kill him. So he has run. He has lost his community, lost his family. He's had to go to a different place. And in this different place, he found an extended relative. And he wanted to marry his daughter, but he got the wrong daughter. So he worked seven years for her. And then it's just this weird, messy thing, right? So 14 years, he's working for this future father-in-law and he gets two wives out of the deal. You can read the whole story. It's kind of weird. I told you, HBO has nothing on the Bible. And, and so, so you have this weird dynamic, but still God blesses him. Now, Jacob is still insecure. He's still fearful for his life. He's still wondering if, if he's, if, you know, if, is he out of God's favor? Did he do too much wrong? Has he messed up in this new way? And yet God still is blessing him. 
He's still multiplying. He's got kids now. He's got all this livestock. He's, things are going okay for him. And now his livestock, his, his possessions have outgrown even his, his father-in-law's land. So he's having to go to a new place. And as he's heading to this new place, he realizes he's about to run into Esau. They're, they're about to see each other. And it's been the first time in a long time. And he's scared. He is scared. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know how this is going to play out. He's, he's insecure. He wonders, he wonders what's, what's Esau going to do and, is, and how's this going to go. Verse 22, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions, and he had a lot of stuff. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Now, I know that's a little bit weird, but this is like, a, this is like an angel of God. And it's a strange story, but you just got to go with it. Somehow, there's an angel that kind of seems like a man, and he's wrestling with Jacob all night long. And it's interesting what happens here. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So here we have Jacob wrestling with this kind of angel of God, demanding a blessing. This Jacob, who has already kind of swindled his way into the birthright, already has the blessing of his dad, already has all this stuff, already is seeing the blessings of God in terms of all his possessions. He's got look like 11 sons, it said. He's, he's being blessed. He's got the birthright. He's in the right lineage. And he's wrestling with this angel demanding more. I want more. I'm still reaching and grasping at the heel of something else because I am not enough. I want more. And that attitude plagued Jacob. He, I, I think many of us have that question gnawing at us inside. Am I enough? Am I enough? And perhaps you wrestle with the appetites that you wrestle because you're trying to feed this inner question that wonders if you, in fact, are enough. And so watch what happens here. The man asked him, what is your name? kind of a weird question. Jacob, he, he replied. Now, this is an angel of God. It's not that he doesn't know who he's dealing with. He knows who he's talking to. He's making a point. Jacob's asking for stuff, for the evidence of external blessing. The angel of God says, who are you? I want you to think about who you are, not the stuff that you want, not the appearance of being blessed. Who are you? I remember when I was in high school and I started dating for the first time. I went to a dance or out on a, a date or something like that. My dad sat me down and he was like, now as you go out, I want you to remember, you, you represent yourself, Caleb. You represent the family, the Andersons, and you represent God. I was like, dang, okay. So you try, try kissing a girl with that looming over your shoulders. I, you know, you're going in like, forget it. I'm representing God. You know, I, I, torching, you know. But he was making a point. My dad was making a point. Who are you? My friend Chuck Scott, when I went off to college at USC and I was going to play volleyball and do this stuff, he sat me down because he had played in the NFL. So he, he knew about kind of the pressures of the sports and everything. And he said, Caleb, before you go, decide who you are and what you will and won't do. Because if you don't know that going in, 
you could get into a whole lot of trouble. Talk about the appetites in college for Division I athletes and whatever else. So this angel of God says, you want blessings. Let me ask you a different question. Who are you? He says, oh, I'm, I'm Jacob. And we have that question at our core. Am I enough? Jacob, not feeling like enough, says, bless me more, bless me more. And the man says, okay, verse 28, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And then Jacob says, well, tell me your name. He replied, why are you asking my name? Like, this isn't about me. <laughs> I created you. I, I, I'm an angel of God. I, this is not about my name. I'm telling you who you are. And then it says he blessed him there. Here's the point. Blessing follows identity. You're asking for stuff, and God's trying to convince you of who you are. You want signs that things are going well, and you want the little things to work out, and he cares about that, but his priority is you knowing you, that he has orchestrated this whole historical drama. He has, he has placed you in part of his story. He has given you a name. He has a purpose for you, a plan for you. He'll give you blessings, like there will be blessings, but the real blessing is that you are you and that you're with him. That is the ultimate blessing. So I want you to think who, not what. When you think about blessings, think who, not what. Don't get hung up on the what. Focus on the who. Who does God say that I am? Because your appetite is never fully and finally satisfied. Your mind is trying to trick you into focusing on things and obsessing about things and believing that a different situation, a different job, a different spouse, a different person, a different experience is going to satisfy you in a way that it can't. And it won't. And you'll find yourself in a situation, just a matter of time, when there'll be a bowl of stew in front of you and you'll have a choice to trade a legacy, a family, something good, something that you hold dear in a moment blinded by appetite for a bowl of stew. It can happen to us. But what God wants us and invites us to focus in on is who he has created you to be. Not the stuff, who you are. It's in that, it's in that that you can find the strength, that he will give you the strength, that he will allow you to be satisfied more and more in him. That when those appetites come up, when they drive you, when they, when they draw at you, you'll say, no, 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 no. I'm a child of the king. I am in this lineage. I share in the blessings and the promises of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through because of Jesus. That's my family. That's my legacy. That's your heritage. That's the life that we continue to live as God brings things back into order, as God does what God is doing as he finishes and concludes and and keeps on in the story of humanity. You have a part to play. He has given you a name and a purpose and a role to play. And that's the invitation today. God, I pray that you would give us strength 
to resist the temptation to compromise who we are and what you have us to do, the lives you've given us, the the blessings you've already given us, give us the strength to overcome those temptations as our minds try to fool us, as, as your enemy brings other things and opportunities and temptations into our path. Help us to pull back and to see the larger story and to choose you and to choose a legacy that matters for our family for generations to come and just to be who you made us to be in Jesus' name.